I got a chance to meet uh, several visitors this morning before we started our service, and if you're here for the first time or just haven't been here for a while, we're excited that you're with us and really glad uh, that you decided to spend this morning with us. And uh, I've really been praying that uh, whether you're new or whether you've been coming here for decades like I have, uh, that God will speak to us this morning. We are starting a new series uh, called No Greater Love, and it's in the book of 1 John, and if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open to the start of 1 John. Um, and we're not going to cover every verse in the entire book, but we're going to do some um, some key passages. And so we're going to look at just a few verses from the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2 this morning. No greater love. The focus uh, of of 1 John is very much about helping us come to grips with how deeply and relentlessly God loves us and the ways he's displayed that. And it invites us to respond to that love appropriately and to love him back. And it helps us understand what that means and what that looks like and what it brings in our life. So I'm excited about the series. We're going to talk this morning about something that really brought up a topic in my life that's been a heartache for me for decades now. Some of you have heard me talk before about uh, my older brother who for decades now has been involved in what I would consider a Christian cult. And he got involved in the group because they presented themselves initially as a group that was deeply committed to discipling people and helping them grow, especially in their knowledge of the Bible and of God and, 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 and developing deep spirituality. And the group spent a lot of time studying the Bible and it looked on the surface like something really, really good. But the teacher, the main leader of the group, turned out to be incredibly controlling and manipulative and Over the years, as a number of people started coming out of the group, which was a very difficult thing to do, but as people came out, we started getting reports of the things that were going on in the group. There was rampant sexual immorality. There was many, many people uh, who were deeply um, gripped by substance abuse. There was tremendous manipulation and control by the leaders for their own selfish benefit. And the leader of the group just recently was convicted for the third time of child molestation. He was sexually abusing the young girls in the group. The first two convictions were set aside, mistrialed because of technicalities. They finally convicted him again just a few months ago and hopefully... He will spend a lot of time in prison where he can't keep doing that. But it's confusing, isn't it? People who present themselves as having this deep knowledge of God, in fact, present themselves as having a deeper knowledge of God than anybody else. And yet their lives are filled with such immense gripping of sin they're immersed in sin, and it's confusing, and it's, how, how can that be? It seems so contradictory, and we don't understand. And as I sat down with my brother at first, several lunches that we spent, this has been decades ago now, several lunches we spent where I started to talk to him about the reports that were coming in. And at first he denied them, but pretty soon there were just too many reports to not 
admit that there was truth in the reports. And finally it came to light. Finally he admitted the false teaching that was leading to this kind of dichotomy and, oh, we are spiritual, we have deep knowledge, but yet our lives are immersed in rebellion and sin toward God. How can that be? And he finally admitted that they believed that what you did with your body and your spirituality were completely separate. Your body's are evil, so what you do with, the, you know, that, that that's inevitable, and you can't help that. But you can have a deep relationship with God, close fellowship with Him, and you can still be engaging in all of these things. And you know what? That's a lie. We're going to see from God's Word, that's a lie. That cannot be. And the false teachings that we're going to see John addressing this morning are exactly that. That false teaching still exists. It it started back there, all the way back there. And it's still around today in various forms. John, the apostle, wrote this book. And John was a guy who was so close to Jesus. He was one of his 12 disciples who for three years followed Jesus around. He was so close to Jesus that he described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He knew how deeply Jesus loved him. And John had eyewitnessed all of the miracles. John had been there for all of Jesus' teaching. John was there when Jesus was crucified. John was there and spent time with the resurrected Jesus. So we can't get a better, a better witness, a better, more credible person to tell us who Jesus is, what he taught, how to have a relationship with him, and what are the ramifications of having a relationship with him or not having a relationship with him. John is as good a witness as we can possibly find. This is unlike some of the other letters that were written in, in the New Testament that were written to a specific church. This is a, a letter that isn't addressed to any one specific church. It was initially circulated through a group of churches in one particular region. But it seems pretty clear by the way it's written that John understood that God was delivering a message that wasn't even just for those that group of churches. It was a message that we would still need today Because the false teachings that he was refuting are still around. And he knew that everyone, people who were genuine Christians and people who claimed to be Christians, needed these truths. They needed to have this false teaching refuted and corrected. And so it was written for us. This is God using John by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. You know, John wanted clarity for us. And we know that because 43 times he uses the word no in this letter. 43 times he wants us to know certain things. And one of the things that he wants us to know at the end of the letter is he wants us to know whether or not we have a relationship with Christ that will result in eternal life. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, as he's kind of wrapping up all that he said previous to that in the letter. He says this, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
God doesn't want us to be wondering, to be insecure. He has provided us everything we need to know with absolute assurance and certainty that we are his child, that our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life, that we have a home in heaven with him. This is not something God intends for us to be insecure about. And so John is writing with that as one of his goals. He wants those who have genuinely put their trust in Jesus to know for sure. But he's also writing to another group here. He's writing to some who claimed to be believers in Christ, but whose understanding of who he is and what that means was so flawed that they really weren't. He didn't want them to have assurance. He wanted people to understand what it meant to have faith in Christ and what what was involved in that so they would have assurance. But he also wanted those who were saying, yeah, I know him. I know him, but really didn't. He did not want them to have assurance. He wanted to point out to them that you are a liar. Pretty strong language, but we'll see. That's actually what he says. So, this group, this group of false teachers that were causing all this chaos and confusion, it's a group that were, were, came to be known as the Gnostics. And the it comes stems from the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. And they had two primary false teachings. I mean, they had a lot of splinters to this, and there were a lot of variations. But, but, but two of the most important issues that they were just wrong on were this. First, they taught that acquiring a higher level of knowledge and enlightenment was the pathway to salvation. It was about what you knew and, and, and having this deep understanding of God and this enlightenment on a spiritual level, whatever that means. Very, very mystical, much like most of the, many of the Eastern religions that talk about reaching nirvana. A level of enlightenment that is higher. And, and of course, it's a lot of the knowledge that they considered to be what it took to have a relationship with God was, you know, secret. And only, only a few people would find it. Right? So they were, they were the, the haves and the have-nots. And they, and of course, most of us were never going to find it, so too bad for us, right? So knowledge was the pathway to salvation. Not at all the truth. Pretty esoteric. I don't know how you're ever supposed to know when you've reached enough enlightenment or gained enough knowledge that you're going to be saved and have a relationship with God. The second aspect, which applies more to to our passage this morning of their false teaching, was that they believed that matter, everything physical all around us, including our bodies, were inherently and hopelessly evil. This caused them, first of all, to believe that, oh, Jesus never really was born and lived in a physical body and died and rose physically because matter is evil and God would never take up residence in evil matter. So they had a lot of confusion and it had a lot of variations to it. But but in general, they denied in one way or another that Jesus, God, God's son, actually came into this world and physically lived. Now, there was another aspect of this. Since matter is evil, and this applies more directly to what we're going to talk about this morning. Since matter is evil, this is how you get 
to this idea that somehow my spirituality and what I do with my body are completely separate. I mean, after all, your body is evil anyway. It's hopeless. It's always going to be evil. There's nothing you can do about that. And so when you do these evil things with your body, that's not sin. That's just your body, your evil body doing what it does. And it doesn't really matter. You can do those things and you can still consider yourself really spiritual and highly knowledgeable and enlightened in your relationship with God. And that, of course, too, is a lie. And that sounds familiar, right? That's what my brother told me. And that, too, is a lie. And we're going to see God's word telling us the truth. The title of our message this morning, can we get, is that going to work? Is it going to advance? Oh, thank you. Is sin our way or God's way? We're going to explore some ways that the Gnostics and, frankly, people today are still, all throughout human history, trying to find ways to embrace false ideas about our sin. Things that we create our own ways of thinking and looking at sin and dealing with sin. We do it our way. We, we, we want to decide for ourselves what sin is, whether or not we have a sin problem, and how to deal with that sin problem. And we're going to find out that in a lot of ways, humanity in general has come up with a lot of things that completely contradict God's good and loving and merciful plan in regard to sin. Our way or God's way. We're going to look at three different ways that are really common. And John addresses them of looking at sin our way rather than God's way. But let's read our passage. Let's, let's just start. First John, we're going to put in at verse 6. John says, If we claim we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie, and the truth is not in us. And we do not live by the truth, phrases later. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in it, in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm going to look at three misconceptions. Three ways that we look, have a tendency, if we're not careful, to look at sin our way rather than God's way. The first way is that we can say to ourselves, and it's a very common thing for people in all throughout human history to say is, I'm not a sinner that needs God's forgiveness. I'm not a sinner that needs God's forgiveness. But God's way, we saw in verse 8, the truth that God tells us is if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 
Then in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar. The Bible is very, very clear in lots of different places. Romans chapter 3 is one of them where God just says very clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, it tells us that the heart of every man is desperately wicked. So if we try to claim we don't have sin, and therefore we're really not in need of God's forgiveness, then we are deceiving ourselves. And we're calling God a liar because he has said we're all sinners. Now, you say, well, why are we all sinners? I mean, I I think I'm a pretty good person. Why does God consider me a sinner who needs to be forgiven? And the answer that Scripture gives us is that we are all born sinners. You know, everybody is descended from the two first people that God created. We are children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and if you go all the way back to the beginning, you find that there's Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve made the decision to distrust God, to rebel against what he had, the simplicity of what he had asked them to do, and to choose their own path, they became sinners. And when we're born... We are given the traits of our parents and our grandparents and and our great-grandparents. You know, for me, looking in the mirror in recent times as I have gotten older and older and older has become a bit of a surreal experience. Because sometimes when I look in the mirror, I think to myself, Who put that picture of my grandfather on my mirror? I mean, truthfully, I can tell you I look so much like my grandfather that it is spooky. Right? Because we all inherit the traits of our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. But that's not just true physically. That's true on a spiritual level, too. We inherit the spiritual flaws that go all the way back to the garden. It has been passed down, that spiritual heart of rebellion and distrust of God and thinking that we have a better plan and a better way. And so all of us are sinners because we are born with a heart that is bent toward rebellion toward God. It manifests itself in all kinds of behaviors and actions, and words, and attitudes that demonstrate that we think we know more than God, that we have a better plan, and that's what sin is. And we are all sinners. You know, the Gnostics use this kind of intellectual gymnastics of saying, oh yeah, you know, our bodies are one thing, and our spirits over here, and those are completely separate to try to say that they had no sin. But we've come up with lots of different ways. Over over the centuries of human history, we've come up with things like redefining sin. And you know, our society is really good at this. We just redefine sin out of existence. You know, even though God has made it clear that there are things 
that are not his plan for our life. Things like divorce and abortion and sex outside of marriage and those inner sins of unforgiveness and wanting revenge toward those who have hurt us. Things like like rebellion toward authority that, you know, we were talking about Thursday night in our group about how we're all, man, we all struggle with that. We all struggle with it at every age. We, we're rebellious. We're just naturally rebellious. That's, that's our sinful heart coming out. And, you know, we just take a survey of society, and if the majority of people decide that something's okay, we just decide, well, I guess it's okay and it's not sin. But you can't redefine sin. We don't get to decide. But we think we do. And so we just define sin out of existence. And if most people are okay with it, then it must not be sin. And I guess I'm not a sinner. Another way that we redo, that we, we, we try to make ourselves not a sinner, and this is probably the single most common way that we try to do this, the intellectual gymnastics that we go through is we say this to ourselves. Oh, you know, compared to most people, I'm not that bad. I've never done anything really bad. You know, I'm not a member of Hamas. I'm not killing and raping and, and, and murdering and, and, and taking people hostage. I'm not, I've never done anything like that. You know, I've never, um, molested any children or stolen the life savings of some elderly person or, you know, I've never done anything really bad compared to most people. In fact, I'm pretty good. I think I grade pretty good on the bell curve, but that's not how sin works. It's, it's not, well, if you get over there, if you're, you know, this good, sin is an offense to God and has to be forgiven. And, and we, but we try to convince ourselves, you know, sinner, I'm not a sinner. You know, I know I've done some bad things, but, and, and, and the other one that we do, here's another, here's another approach to this. We just tell ourselves that, you know, I've done some bad things, but I've done a whole lot more good things than I've done bad things, right? And so let's just, let's just load it up on the scales and, you know, I'm actually a pretty good person and, you know, I've gone to church quite a bit and given money to the church and, and I've served in the church and I, I've given to all kinds of benevolent organizations and I, I serve at the food bank and, you know, I give money to the homeless people that I see and, you know, I've taken care of the widow that lives next door to me. And, you know, you get the idea. Why We can make this long list of things to try to convince ourselves that we've done so much good that it cancels out the bad. But that's not how it works. The Bible is clear that all our good works done apart from the work of God producing genuinely good works in us are as filthy rags, the Bible says. You can't use filthy rags to clean something else up. Good works don't cancel out bad works. The Bible is clear that no one will be saved by good works. It's by the grace and the mercy of God that we can be saved, not by good works. And so if we think that, oh, I've done more good than bad, so that cancels out all of my bad, and I actually have some stuff in the good column left after I cancel out all my bad, that's a way that we try to convince ourselves, I'm not a sinner. I don't need forgiveness. I've, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But let's remember what it said. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin that needs to be forgiven, we are calling God a liar. Because he says that we do. We need his forgiveness. And he's holding it out to us. But we can pretend like we don't need it. We can convince ourselves that we don't need it. Because we can convince ourselves that we don't have any sin. There's a second misconception. There's a second way that we look at sin our way. And that's this. Our wrong way is that we can say to ourselves, I can be forgiven and have a relationship with God without confessing and repenting of my sinful rebellion toward him. But we see, excuse me. We see that God says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. The idea of walking in darkness here is that somebody whose life is typified by living with disregard for what God says is true and good and right. We think and speak and behave based on our own standards and what we want, what we think is okay, rather than having a humble heart toward him and allowing him to choose the path for our life. If we claim to have fellowship with him or a relationship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Notice, it's interesting, it doesn't say if anyone steps into the darkness. No, it's if they walk in the darkness. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession here is admitting that we've done the wrong things. Not just that, but it's agreeing with God that we need to turn away from those. That we need to let him change us. Next verse says, we know that we have come to know him if his... If we obey his commands, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. It's not about perfectly keeping his commands. Again, it's not about stepping into the darkness. It's about the position of our heart. If we have a faith relationship with Jesus, then our heart is going to be go from being bent toward rebellion toward him to really wanting to obey him. True follower of Jesus has come to an understanding that God's plan is rooted in love for them. God's plan is that he wants to bring his best and his blessing into our life, and we can trust him to choose the path. And so we've gone from rebellion toward God to wanting to follow him and trust him and obey him. There's another quickly way that we we, uh, think wrongly about sin. I can make myself good enough to... To deserve to be accepted by God and allowed into heaven. But that's not the truth. God's truth, God's way to think about sin is that the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Then he says a little later, we have one who speaks to the father on our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sin. I want to talk about, we can try to find other ways, but God is clear there's only one way for the guilt of our sins to be dealt with. 
And that is why Jesus came into this world. He came to save sinners. He came to offer himself. It says he's the righteous one. He lived for a full life on this earth and never sinned. Completely righteous. God in the flesh, never sinning. And he gave himself. He went to the cross so God could take the the debt of my sin, the punishment that I deserved, and place it on him. Him being the atoning sacrifice. This word propitiation can be kind of intimidating and, and even hard to say. Let's try to say that five times quick. But it's not. It's simple. Propitiation just means the complete satisfaction of a debt. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus paid for all our sins. And there's nothing more that we need to add. He has provided everything that is needed and he can forgive us. And if we try to go any other way, if we think we're not a sinner and don't need forgiveness, or if we think there's something we can do to make ourselves acceptable, then we will deprive ourselves. We will, we will not see the need to respond to Jesus and experience what he came to give us. Forgiveness of our sins. Adoption as a child of God. An eternal home in heaven. And, and, and freedom from slavery to sin. Jesus begins working in our life so that we don't walk in the darkness. Oh, I step into the darkness every day. But the desire of my heart is to step back, to come to him in confession as we saw there. To, 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 to experience and understand that my sin is completely forgiven. I don't have to worry about going and being open and honest to my Heavenly Father. He knows already, and He's forgiven me already. Yes, I need to go and confess to restore the, that closeness, that fellowship, like a father whose son has, has, has sinned against him. When we sin as a child of God, it doesn't sever our relationship with Him. But when we come and confess, which will be the pattern, the heart, of a true Christian, it restores that fellowship. John says one more thing. I want to read one more verse, the next verse after the end of our passage. This is what John says about all of this. John says, if anybody obeys God's word, if anybody responds to these truths, that we're all a sinner, that that, that Jesus is the only way to have our sins forgiven, that... That coming to God and surrendering ourselves to Him in response to His love leads to helping us not walk in the darkness, not experiencing the, the, the destruction that sin brings into our lives and wants to experience the blessing that God wants to bring into our lives by, by trusting Him and following Him with our whole life. If you want that, what's going to make you do that? He says this, listen to this. If anyone obeys God's word, God's love is truly made complete in him. What will motivate that? What causes me to have come to him? And the reason I know I'm a Christian is because when I step into the darkness, which like I say, I'm struggling, but when I step into the darkness, the desire of my heart is to run to my father who has provided his son as an offering to forgive my sin. I hate being in the darkness. I want to obey him. Why? Because I understand how much he loves me. 
I want to come to Christ for forgiveness, which I did 50 years ago. Why? Because I know how much he loved me. He proved how much he loved me by coming into this world and taking all of my sin, the debt that I owed, the punishment that was was due me. He allowed it to be put on him so that I would be forgiven and experience relationship with him and spend all eternity with him. That was love. And when I understand how much he loves me, I'll want all of that and I'll respond to all of that. So this morning I'm hoping that maybe there are some in this room who never have understood that God loves them like that before. And that as you see how he has proved his love, how he wants to pour his love into your life, but when you're pushing him away and you're choosing to look at things your way instead of his way, it keeps you from experiencing relationship with him and the forgiveness and the blessings that come with being his child. And I want to invite you this morning, if you never have made that decision before, you can do that right now. God knows and sees and hears your thoughts and the intentions of your heart and your mind as you're sitting right there. He knows what you're thinking. And if you have never made a decision to trust Jesus, I want to invite you to just make that decision now. If God is revealing himself to you and you're seeing his love for you in a way you never have before, you can come into relationship with him right now. Just in your own words, you can say something like this. I'll just give you some thoughts, but you can express these things in your own heart, in your own mind to him, in your own words. You can say something like, Father, I know I'm a sinner. And I've rebelled against your good and loving plan for my life in so many ways. I believe that you love me and you've provided a way for all my sins to be forgiven through what Jesus did when he died for me in my place to take this punishment for my sins. Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you alone to purify me from all my sins because no one else can. Jesus, I'm trusting you as the one I want to follow with my life. I know you love me and I trust you to change me and to always lead me to what is good and what will bring your blessing into my life. Thank you for loving me and forgiving me and forgiving me the assurance that I will be in heaven with you as your child for all eternity. If you believe that and can say those things to God, you can experience the love of God through what Jesus has done for you. You can have a relationship with him, and I invite you to do that right now. If you need to talk, I'd love to talk to you. Or maybe you came with a friend. I'm sure they'd love to talk more about it and answer any questions you have. If you're a believer, the truths that we've talked about this morning, the things that God has said to us through John here should give you great assurance great assurance that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you do love us 
And we're thankful that your word corrects when we have wrong thinking. Help us to believe you because you never lie. You are faithful to everything you have said. And we thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray that if there's some who are still thinking about the things they've learned about who you are, about your love, about Jesus this morning, and are not just ready yet, that you would keep speaking to them, that they would come to trust Jesus soon. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.